Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. Use your voice. We have a super powerful industry worldwide. 50% of people work in a restaurant at some point in their lives in the United States. And 100% of people, I'm guessing, go to restaurants. Restaurants are sort of the fabric that ties any community together and keeps the streets safe. And so we need to use our voices to really make the public value restaurants, pay a little bit more, make legislation that supports them. A lot of uh, the good operators are doing a lot of the right things, but we don't have time for everybody to opt in when they feel like it. We have to make the industry more hospitable now. This is Mary Sue Milligan, a hospitality trailblazer and maverick. She is known as an activist, author, chef, and restaurateur. And you will find out in this episode, she believes and hopes for a more humane, profitable, and agile industry. Mary Sue and her business partner, Susan Finnegan, founded the critical acclaimed City Cafe in LA in 1981. And they've been recognized many times for changing and setting better and higher standards when it comes to food and hospitality. She's been starring on a number of TV shows and she's especially known for the 396 episodes of Two Hot Tamales together with her business partner Susan. And she's over the years been awarded a number of awards, especially the Julian Child Award, which she got in 2018 for her great contribution to the industry for showing the way forward for women in hospitality. As she's been acting, doing good and involved in a number of organizations besides running her restaurants. And these organizations are all on a mission to make the world a better place as well as our industry. And to mention a few, board member at the Jane Spear Foundation, share our strengths, and she's recently founded Reher, which is a peer-to-peer network for women who runs restaurants in the Los Angeles area. In this episode, we talk about how you build a strong business partnership over 40 years and what her key learnings are and what you need to do to make it work. She also shares what she's learned for being a TV celebrity and how you can use these learnings to become a better leader and human. She also shares her views on the future state of the, the industry and the current ones. And we take a deep dive into a broken financial model and a food system that is no longer working. We talk about the staffing crisis impact on her business and what they have done to become an employer of choice by changing people practices and leadership approach. We also talk about life and leadership lessons and how to show up pro and how to stay in balance when things get tough. Before you tune in, please sign up for our weekly newsletter packed with more Maverick insights, strategies and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. If you like Trailblazer and Maverick thinking, you should stop up right now and stop whatever you're doing 
and grab your pen and notebook. There are some great leadership and life lessons to be learned in this episode. Enjoy. Today we have a, a very special guest, a pioneer and a maverick, I would say. During her career, which is a actually impressive forty years in our industry, always been setting new and higher standards when it comes to how she operates her restaurant and how actually we take the restaurant industry to the next level. Uh, she's also been a huge uh, influence on us how we as humans interact and understand food. And she has uh, also, with other incredible humans, built organizations and movements that makes the world a better place. And uh, she's won a number of awards. With that said, I'm uh, very humble and honored to have you on the show, Mary Sue. You are one of my uh, personal heroes together with Susan. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, for sure. And it was our shared uh, friend, uh, John Spiteri, that actually did the intro, and he said you needed to talk with uh, Mary Sue. Uh, because uh, I think she she can tell how we should actually be in hospitality in in the new area much better than I could. So I said, oh yeah, I would love that opportunity. So here we are. Um, and I I think most people, if they know a bit of food, knows about your your huge journey and stuff like that. But one of the things I was thinking about when I was like following you and I did a bit of research on you, and that you and Susan has been together for forty years, and I think that's incredible. I have business partners myself, and uh, it's like a marriage. Sometimes it really takes a lot of strain and change, and you know you've gone through some some very very big changes within the industry and the world together. H- how did you actually, you know, how did you met and actually found that dynamism you need to have that, and how do you actually manage to keep it alive for forty years? Yeah, well. Um... You know, it's no surprise we met in a kitchen, of course. Uh, we had both already finished a chef training schools. Susan went to the CIA in New York, and I went to a, a trade school on the south side of Chicago. And um, we met in a very fancy, beautiful kitchen that I think we both would say gave us the best training of of any kitchen or of any um, experience called La Perroquet in Chicago. And, um, you know, we, we just... We hit it off immediately. This was in the late '70s, and we both um, ended up going to France separately um, because we worked together for about a year, and then she moved to California, and we kind of lost track of each other. But we ended up in France at the same time and kept in touch over there. I, we were both apprenticing. I was in Paris, and she was in the south of France. And then, um, you know, at the end of that year in, of apprenticeship, we just sort of got together in Paris and said, "Let's open a restaurant together." You know. We had no money. <laughs> we had, you know, we were young. We were saying, where should, where should we go? Should we open in like Denver or Phoenix or, you know? Anyway, we ended up just coming back to the states and going to work immediately to try to make enough money to, you know, pay the rent. And um, but within a couple of of months or about a, six months after we got back, Susan called me with an opportunity saying that, you know, she had this little tiny cafe, 900 square feet. So you can imagine how small a little bar that sits at eight or 10 people and like six or eight tables. And uh, the kitchen was really 10 foot by 10 foot tiny. And um, it didn't even have a stove. It had hot plates in the beginning. So she said, but you know, it's owned by these people who own an eyeglass company and they don't really know what they're doing. And, and they, 
would like to take us on as partners to run the cafe. And, you know, I think being a woman in this, being two women in this industry, um, we were pretty quick to jump at that opportunity to just call the shots for ourselves rather than continue to sort of, you know, run up against that patriarchy kind of that sort of, you know, male dominated business. So even though, you know, probably people that I went to chef school were starting off and getting jobs, big chef jobs, overseeing big kitchens, I think we opted to go small for our first venture. And so that was City Cafe. Actually, that's where I met John Spatieri. He was a (laughs) busboy with pink hair. (laughs) <laughs> and um but we you know we 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 worked six days a week from morning till night we served breakfast lunch and dinner we had a blackboard we wrote the menu on and um it was just fantastic it was a great like boot camp for learning the restaurant business the the mistakes we made were small enough that we could learn from them and we were very fortunate we got great uh press really early on and um within a few uh, years, we decided to move to a bigger space and we raised money from all of our best customers and friends and family. We had 35 investors, <laughs> which is a lot for a restaurant. And uh, But we were able to open the big city restaurant. And then that's when we turned the little cafe into Border Grill because we loved Mexican food and we just, you know, craved the delicious kind of authentic Mexican food that you could get if you drove all the way into East LA. But we were in the West side of LA and there wasn't very, there weren't very many, you know, uh, authentic Mexican places. There were a lot of those Americanized kind of, you know, lots of bright orange cheese and sour cream and, you know, um, but anyway, that they both, both city restaurant and border grill were, you know, a pretty big hit, that year in 1985, when we moved and opened the, the Mexican, the little, the little border grill. And, you know, I think, I think the secret to being collaborators and business partners for 40 years is that, I mean, we're both deeply introspective. We think about, you know, our, we, we really, inter, you know, think about ourselves in a kind of a, a whole way internally and externally and how we're dealing with the world. And, you know, we're curious, we're both really, um, and we, at, at the core, we love collaborating. I mean, I would say I'm codependent even. <laughs> I just love to collaborate. I love to collaborate with my team, with Susan. I always find it better. For example, with email, I hate, I don't like, I, I mean, email is, has a place and it's very helpful. But for the most part, if someone sends me an email with a bunch of questions, I just pick up the phone and call them. Because I think that when we have that interaction, we actually solve questions, solve things better. And we understand better what we're what we're talking about. And I think that I fear that email has taken some of that out of our lives where that collaboration is so much richer and more and you come up with a better solution and better answers and and um and I think the other thing about Susan and I is, you know, our strengths and our weaknesses are are very different. I'm really organized. I'm really big picture, like looking at the whole thing. 
Susan is very much in the weeds with the staff, very, um, you know, granular. And so we, we complement each other in that way. And we allow each other to grow and change. You know, 40 years is a long time. I'm not the person I was at 23, <laughs> you know, when we opened our first restaurant together, City Cafe. So, um, and that was 1981. So I think, you know, we've gone through some rough patches, no doubt. I mean, serious rough, rough patches and questioned whether we wanted to even stay in the partnership, I think. But, um, but by, by allowing ourselves to, you know, uh, really question those things and really look at them, I think we've really come to the conclusion that we're better together than we would be, you know, the, the sum of the parts is much greater than just adding them up. And it's so interesting. It's a bit like, uh, as you explained, I was thinking about uh, it's a guy called Gino Wickman. He's talked about that in a, in a perfect business or any kind of relationship where you're trying to move an organization forward, you need the visionary and the implementer. And I almost feel like you're talking about is like you found those two roles and you are, besides that, you probably also fuel each other with personal development and make each other grow, you know, because it's the, the sum of you together. It's very true. Yeah. And, and as a funny little anecdote aside is that um, when, when I first met Susan, she just divorced her husband. And five years later, we hired her husband to be the architect of our new restaurant, City Restaurant. And within, I don't know, five or six weeks, he and I fell in love and we've been married for 34 years. <laughs> well, that, that demands a strong partnership. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always joke that I have her try everything first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and you went on, on an incredible journey besides, you know, you opened a number of business together. You've done a lot outside as well. You, you've done TV shows. And, and one of the things I was thinking about preparing for this as well, like, did you, I guess you didn't plan to become a celebrity chef. Uh, I think you can't plan for those things in, in life. But you became a celebrity chef together with Susan. What, what did you learn about yourself doing, you know, I think you've done more than 350 cooking programs. Uh, on the Food Network and others as well. Um, what is the, the top learnings? Well, um, one thing that I came away from it with is that the hospitality industry is the best industry around. The entertainment industry is a lot more brutal and cutthroat and not as just, I mean, we're so lucky to be in, I feel, in the hospitality business. I mean, sure, it's hard to make money. It The margins are slim. But but people are really hospitable. I mean, people want the reason we go into this business and we work so hard is because we love other people. And um, I, I don't it's got some a little bit less soul. <laughs> it's a little less soulful in other industries, I noticed. Um, and I like being with people. I like that interaction, like I was saying earlier. And I think that, um, you know, writing cookbooks and doing TV shows. And we had a radio show for many years. Um, it was just a great way to kind of engage an audience that then I could talk to in the restaurant. And so I think it complements each other. I think if you're a celebrity chef who just does TV and you don't have a restaurant, I mean, I would find that uh, a little bit less fulfilling. 
I mean, you'd see your fans and everything, but I guess I, and I just love the, the way it all fits together because you have the restaurant where you're, you know, creating new dishes and practicing new techniques and doing things. And then you can go talk about it on, on your TV show or your radio show or in your cookbook and, you know, keep on pushing and, and learning and challenging oneself. I think that's what I love about the industry and about cooking is that it, there's just, you know, I'll, I'll never stop learning. I'll, it's just every single day is a new revelation to me. That journey also made you learn and actually engage with your audience. And actually, you know, a lot of successful concepts or restaurateurs or chefs right now, they, they, they are doing in principle what you did, you know, decades ago. So you started a bit of a revolution at that time uh, with, with a few things like radio would be podcasting today. And I know there's lots of fellow industry people that does as well uh, because they, they want to give something back or they want to have an influence on something. A lot of happened in the four decades you've been involved, and then the pandemic came along and threw everything up in the air. There was already some signs that we were going through some some challenges. Uh, what, what is your view on the, the current situation? Because there's a lot of hardship out there, uh, but we, we're now trying to come back. Yes, we are. And I think, um, well, I'm a glass half full kind of person, so I feel like this. there's a lot of silver linings in the pandemic for our industry it's really laid bare the the how fundamentally broken our financial model has been how um how we need to really make big changes as operators but also as diners you know i think um and i think diners who went for many many months without the opportunity to go to a restaurant really missed it and i think now is a kind of special moment that we can capitalize on to really get the message across to diners that that this model was broken and long before the pandemic. And it's time now that we value that experience of going to a restaurant and pay for that experience what it's what it should be worth. And that means that what it should be worth when the restaurant has enough money to staff appropriately and really create a a working environment that's healthy for our teams so that we're not constantly stretched thin and asking someone to work a double or a, or a six shift or, you know, because we can't quite afford to have extra staff, but people do get sick. And that's all true from farm all the way to fork, you know, so the food system and the, the, the model has to do with, you know, more than just the restaurants, you know, the, on the backs of immigrant labor where, you know, the working conditions are also can be appalling, you know, those, those, all those things. And the d disruption in the supply chain also has hit pretty hard and brought to light, you know, how fragile the, the food system is. And so I guess I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about this moment, you know, for our industry to reinvent itself and to um, come back in a way that's stronger and more um, hospitable. <laughs> it's interesting that we're the hospitality business, but it's not been the greatest place to work. When I started in the industry, um, I got $3.25 an hour, $3.25. 
and we worked, um, we were paid for eight hours a day, but we were expected to work 10 or 12. And we, you know, we just, there were, the labor laws didn't really apply to our industry. <laughs> it was very odd. Of course, it's improved over these 40 years, but I think we're still kind of late to the, to the, to the, to, you know, becoming a more professional profession where people have paid time off and sick, you know, leave for having children and, you know, a lot more kind of um, normal kind of benefits that people would have. And I think that's, it's time for us to really look and try to make that happen. You talk about that the consumers probably have to be prepared to pay more. Do you think they are prepared now after a pandemic? And because again, there is like this expectation around price is an interesting conversation in hospitality. Oh, I know. And I think um, that some consumers will be and some won't be. And uh, we will lose a lot. We have already lost a lot of restaurants. I mean, I lost one of mine, the downtown one. Um, and we're going to continue to lose restaurants um, post pandemic due to the to the well, you know, we're having an incredible labor shortage. And, you know, I think that speaks to some of what I was talking about, our industry being a little bit, um, you know, inhospitable. I think some, some staff had this like gift of four or five months at home with their parent, with their families, with their children, you know, able to take care of themselves and in a way that the industry didn't really allow for before. I mean, many of my prep cooks have are working two jobs, so they're working 80 hours a week because that's what it costs to live in L.A. And, you know, what we pay our prep cooks isn't enough. So they had all this time. And I think it really sunk in to for many of them that, you know, do they really want to go back to this brutal industry that, you know, kind of glamorizes an unbalanced lifestyle and, you know, you know, almost shames people for taking care of themselves. You know, I think we've, we've through all the, you know, the kitchen confidential and Tony Bourdain's kind of, you know, expose of the kind of, you know, the underbelly of the restaurant industry, which was true back then, much of it. And um, I think it, Susan and I really made the decision long ago in the eighties that we wanted to run a restaurant that was different than the ones that we came up through and really was managed in a different way, had a completely different kind of management style. And um, it's worked really well for us. I think our staff is incredibly loyal. We have one sous chef and one line cook in Vegas who have both worked for us since 1985. Wow. Well, that's impressive in our industry. Yeah. And and a lot of our, you know, I think you, it pays off to value your team for sure. Um, but it's also, you know, we don't have a hugely expensive restaurant. We wanted restaurants that our, our friends could afford to eat in. And we worked in restaurants that our friends couldn't afford to eat in. You know, they were like, you'd look out at the parking lot, it'd be Rolls Royces and Mercedes and, you know, um, that that wasn't the kind of restaurant we wanted. We wanted, you know, where, you know, the punk rock hairdresser could come in <laughs> and afford a meal as well as the, the, 
businessman who is a music executive, you know, um, and that's what we really created. But we so the price point isn't at that level that you can just, cre- you know, you can do whatever you want. You can pay more. You can pay more for your product. You can pay more for your team and, and benefits. So it's it's I understand the challenge. It's definitely uh, difficult for sure. And, and it has been. And I think, you know, a lot of my friends in who own restaurants and have owned restaurants for 20 or 30 years in the last five years have said, you know, I'm getting out of the business because the financial model's broken. So we, we have an opportunity right now, though, I think, to just really make a change. Yes, yeah, so is it possible to, to rewrite the playbook in principle, you say? When we go back to the, the, the staffing crisis, and then you said that you have always, you know, from early days been focusing on uh, trying to build a culture where people feel welcome and not uh, looked at as an employee. What is it that you do? What, what is there any learnings you can share with people out there? Because I know there's a lot of people that want to change things, but they don't know really where to start. Right. Well, I think in our restaurants, we have always made it a requirement that people work five days and have two days off in a row. Um, and that's still can be, it's not as unusual now, but 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was pretty unusual. Um, we've always tried to get the best health care we could for our teams and that we could afford. And that's been a, a, a real priority for us. We also try to bring our team into the whole culture of our restaurants. So for example, sustainability is really important to me. When I first became a mom, I was um, kind of alarmed about the food system and what was going on with pesticide use and um, with overfishing of the oceans and, you know, uh, antibiotic overuse of antibiotics in the livestock and animals. So I got really active and, um, you know, I want my grandkids to have the same beautiful variety of flavors and textures and foods to, to try that I have been, you know, so blessed with. So we slowly, every year, we take on another sustainability challenge at the restaurant. You know, we we do only sustainable seafood and we do only, you know, non-GMO and and proteins that are raised without the use of antibiotics. And I think the team really gets to kind of get become part of that. They, they're very proud of it. They, they learn. They're, you know, it's educational for everybody. And then they teach the customer about it, you know, the, the, your frontline marketers, your servers. Um, so I think that the, the one thing that keeps our team motivated is, is that, you know, they're, they're part of a, a restaurant that ha- has put a stake in the ground and said, we're going to be, you know, we're going to do good things for the planet. And then I think we also have over the years developed a, a kind of a management style where we ask the staff for their input on all kinds of things. Even if you're a busboy or a dishwasher or a host, you know, I believe those people are on the front lines and they see things that I can't see because I'm, you know, I'm, I've got the big picture kind of vision. So I love learning from them what they think needs to happen to move the restaurants forward a little bit more. 
which we're always doing. If you don't keep reinventing yourself and changing and creating, you know, not just new menu items, but just, you know, energy in the restaurant, it's, it has to keep changing. You mentioned before, uh, Mary Sue, that, uh, you know, the food system, uh, we, we saw some cracks and we've probably known there's been cracks for years. You talked about pesticides, you talked about GMO. Is it broken, our food system? You said it's not only the restaurants we have a challenge and we have to go back to the farmers. Right. Um, in some, in many ways, it is broken, but the food system is working better than it ever has been in terms of reducing the number of malnourished or starving people in in the whole world. And now we kind of see the world as our global community. You know, I think that's new. Forty years ago, I don't think we were looking at what's happening all around the globe. Whereas now, everybody is very attuned to that because, you know, we have limited resources and we have, you know, big issues like climate change. And the food system is in some ways better, but it's also we've all become more educated about what's going on and what needs to happen. And it's not changing fast enough. You know, the food system is a huge contributor to global warming and we can't possibly go on like this. The American diet is definitely a problem. We have to reduce our intake of animal products and increase our, the, our plant-based products intake. And, and that is good for our bodies as well as for the planet, but it's absolutely essential for the planet. And I think that um, we start, Susan and I started um, literally 30 years ago with um, this 80-20 idea, 80% plant-based and 20% um, protein or animal. And, you know, that's how we both eat, but it's also how our menus are designed so that, that there's a lot of options for vegetarian and almost vegetarian, you know, and we can make anything vegan because we, we have a lot of vegans and we are happy to cater to that. But we, we like to create a dish that has is so delicious that hardcore carnivores they don't miss the meat you know that's the goal like as a chef we're we're supposed to be able to sprinkle that fairy dust on the you know the very plant forward dishes and have a meat eater go well i don't really miss the steak or the fish or the whatever and you can do that with things that are really you know um there's an umami that you can get from like anchovies or bacon. And, you know, it just takes a little bit in a, you know, we do this uh, bean salad with bacon and um, it's a smoky chipotle chilies. And we make it on a tostada with a little um, purslane. And it's so great, you know, so delicious. And I think that, you know, you don't miss the meat it, it necessarily. So, um, I guess I'm hoping that um, this is also a time when the general public all over the world is going to really come together. You know, I, I'm a big, big fan of the United Nations uh, sustainability goals. And and actually in, in London, I um, was part of the, the beginning of the Chef's Manifesto kind of movement. And, and I, I sit in on those meetings now and again because they're connected to those sustainable development goals that I think are so important. And of the 17 goals, I think, you know, probably 10 
intersect with the food system, you know? And so there, I mean, I would like to see down the road, you know, every restaurant in the world have sort of a dashboard on their website that kind of shows how they're doing on, you know, gender parity and how they're doing on, you know, increasing plant-based food consumption and, you know, like an actual measuring of our own, of all of our behaviors, because um, we don't have that much time left. (laughs) We got to get, get cracking. Yeah, and it's it's a huge ambition you have on behalf of a, an industry that's in in its knees in principle, but also that's the opportunity, as you said before, because we can take a new role in people's you know mindset. I guess that's the key thing here that hospitality can actually really educate people about food, because I guess that's the challenge as well that people don't know enough about food. Yes, they don't know where their food comes from or how it's grown. Um, and I don't fault them for that either, because I think um, there have been powerful lobbies that have, you know, helped obscure where where food comes from. And many people are living at or beneath the poverty line and working, like I said, two jobs. You know, it's a lot of information to sort through to make a decision about where to eat or what to eat. And you can't expect that every citizen of the planet is going to have time or energy or be able to do that. That's why I'm a big believer in uh, lobbying our legislators to do a better job of protecting our citizens and the planet. Um, You know, so many of the horrible diseases that are afflicting um, Americans anyway are diet related. And they, that comes right back down to the food system too. You know, we've been, um, subsidizing the corn uh, industry. And then there was so much corn that, you know, the, the high fructose corn syrup be, be kind of got into every part of the diet, into everything. And um, so it's costing us a lot in healthcare costs, you know, for, because, and I feel it's a failure of the government on the government's part, you know, to protect us and, you know, to, to really, you know, cater to that lobby that was, that has been lobbying for, you know, I, and it is a very, um, it's a lot of these decisions that are so profit-based are, that are affecting the food system are going, we have to rethink those, you know, it's a very, it's a different world now. And I think, um, you know, capitalism has got us this far, but it's not going to get us to the next step. I'm just a horrible liberal. <laughs> no, no, I think you're absolutely right for for cause, uh, you know, profit is what you need to do to make positive change in the world. And uh, it's not the outcome. It's the fuel for that. Uh, and I think you're spot on that. There's some, there's some really, we had uh, a couple of weeks ago and he's going live actually this week, uh, Tom Barton from a UK-based burger chain of all uh, talking about regenerative farming and how he is now uh, going through their supply chain again to find out that they make sure they get the best produce and the most that's best for you know for people communities and the planet and that's interesting that, that they've been in business for 10 years and they could have opened probably four 40 restaurants more but they decided not to because we need to fix that problem first yeah that's exciting there's a movement here called zero food print have i don't know if you've heard about it anthony mint uh started it and he owns um, a restaurant in San Francisco called Mission Chinese. And um, it's 
it's a way for restaurants to support regenerative farming. And basically it says 1% to unfuck the planet <laughs> on the bottom of your check. And that means that 1% of the sales are going to um, a fund that is state run in California, but it, it actually supports ranchers who are changing from traditional methods to regenerative ranching and farming. So I, um, I think that that's a great, great, the regenerative is a great word. It's better than sustainable. It actually, you know, I think if we could start using regenerative as the benchmark and the standard we're trying to get to, then, and if everything, you know, that flows through the kitchen, if you're looking for that regenerative um, aspect, that's what our planet needs so desperately. Going on to, to, to another challenge, because the food system is a, a huge challenge itself. That's probably a 10-hour podcast and that also with my own passion around it. Uh, but we're talking a bit about like diversity challenges in hospitality. I know you're a bit advocate for, for women leaders in the, the industry, but also that we get more diversity. Where do you see we are as a, an industry when it comes to that? Well, from my perspective here in the United States anyway, um, the challenge is really not how many black, brown, gay, trans people um, are in the industry or the, the workers. We can attract those workers, no problem. And we do, and we employ a lot of them. But And I think we've always welcomed, welcomed diversity in kitchens, um, and, and especially in kitchens. I don't know about the front of the house as much, but um, it's always since for 40 years in my, in my experience, it's been a very welcoming place for people that didn't fit in maybe necessarily um, very well in other places. But the huge problem and challenge is that so few of these minorities are in any kind of position of power, you know, including women. You know, 50% of the graduates from chef school here in, in the United States are women, and 7% have top executive chef jobs. That's just shameful, in my opinion. Wow, yeah. That's a... Uh... That's an, you know, an outstanding number in a, in a very negative way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is because, you know, women uh, hold the families together. We have babies. We're the industry is not very, um, you know, hospitable or attractive to um, women. We don't, you know, we don't take into account that, you know, women need paid time off for maternity leave. And we don't have that built into the financial model. Um, but I think there's some great things happening right now around that. I think especially, I mean, in the United States, um, after the racial sort of reckoning last summer and the George Floyd murder, um, it's been it's been really good and great to see so much like consciousness around every event I do. or And part of what... I do is at every event I get asked to do, I say, well, who else is, will be there? And if it's like me and five white guys, I'm like, you know what? I think you should, uh, I think you should look back at the diversity of this event and then call me back, you know, but I don't want to, I don't want to be part of that anymore. I don't want to support it with my time and my energy. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And a lot of people are, you know, 
deciding to try to make a difference in a bigger way than we ever have for that diversity challenge. Um, we During the pandemic, I'm very proud of this, we started a, a new organization in Los Angeles County called Regarding Her. It was kind of a, you know, something that grew out of my work with the James Beard Foundation. I'm on the board of trustees and um, we, during the pandemic in the early days, we got a bunch of women operators together to have monthly calls and sort of share stories and ideas of how we're, how are you pivoting? What are you doing? What grants are you trying to apply for? And just helping each other. And there were eight of us, nine of us in LA who were really consistently going. And then we just coalesced into a group that created this nonprofit. And um, within, I don't know, like four months, we had over a hundred members and it's free membership. So you, if you are a woman owned, not a hundred percent, but more than 50% or 50 or more women owned um, entrepreneur in food and beverage, you're welcome as a, as a member. And then we put on a festival at the end of January last year called uh, 10 days regarding her. It started on the, the anniversary of the first women's March um, in 2016 or 2017, I think. Um, and we, we really highlighted women owned restaurants all over. And we were very, very, you know, um, intentional about the diversity factor. We went to, you know, all over the county. Geographically, we were very diverse, but we also got, you know, all the big name hard hitters, Suzanne Goen, Nancy Silverton, you know, the people who've been around and been leaders, they were all part of it. But we also found, you know, little tiny restaurants in Compton or, you know, in the South Bay or in Woodland Hills or, you know, really like little places that are owned by immigrants or, you know, women of color. So we had over 50% of our members at the first launch were women of color. And um, that was exciting because we also did this great cross pollinization and we did all these collaborations, which I think the difference between the way women approach life and the way men do. And it's not, of course, a hundred percent because we're all a mishmash of, we're all on the spectrum between men and women somewhere. But I think, you know, women are very focused on uh, uh, collective success, you know, uh, uh, on success as, you know, a team and as a group that is doing things together. Whereas I think men are more focused on sort of individual success. And um, they don't see it the same way, which is why we need more women in power, you know, so that there can be a, some balance of those two things is going to be what what kind of is, I think, going to help solve a lot of the world's problems. But in regarding her, um, we were able to drive a lot of businesses, a lot of business to these women owned restaurants. And we were also able to collaborate where I had, you know, Hotville Chicken, the chef Kim Prince, an African-American, uh, come up to my restaurant in Santa Monica and make uh, Hotville fried chicken tacos. And I went down to her restaurant for a day and made um, Santa Monica Farmer's Market Street Bowls, which because she was she we were, we were gonna, wanted to do a collaboration. And so people in Santa Monica don't ever get down to Crenshaw to eat her chicken. But now they do <laughs> because it's 
amazing and delicious. And we introduced her, her, her chicken to the Santa Monica community. And so we did a lot of those and, and it was very, very successful. And then we raised some money and were able to give out 15, uh, $10,000 grants to, um, women. We had a great grant selection process and committee, really powerful people in LA that, that volunteered to be on the committee and do all the evaluation. And, and then, um, we're also actually now going to expand to other cities in the country. And um, I, I feel that we have kind of figured out something that I've been working on for a long time, which is how to create that social change. Um, it's just hard to do, but we're doing it on a more um, local community level with deep roots and, um, and we're seeing a lot of success. And I think that if I, if we can also like give the playbook for how we're doing it to 10 women in Washington, DC, and then, you know, we're going to do a beta test there. I think that it'll um, really, you know, we have a, we have a map on our website where you can find all the women owned restaurants. We now have over 300 members and growing. And we also have a kind of a community forum, uh, uh, you know, where, where just the members are allowed and we, we can share you know, job descriptions or who's got a good plumber or, you know, hey, there's another grant you can apply for. Let's all do that. You know, so it's a very um, helpful, incredible um, network of people and ideas. And it's powerful. I, I love how you, you, you're you very passionate about it and you can feel it comes from the heart. But you also talk about there's a solution everyone can learn from in the industry, male or female, is that it's important to come together to find solution. And actually it's important to get many different views from different diversity and energy, because that's actually what brings new thinking to the table because the old ways are gone. They, they're not going to work anymore. They maybe work for some time, but they're definitely going to die at some point. So, so I really, really love that, uh, Mary Sue. What, what uh, going through, you know, four decades, you met a lot of people, but you know, if you had to mention three that has been most influential to you and where you are today, yeah, it's always hard to limit it to a certain number. Yeah. But, you know, when I was 16, I met um, a, a baker, a gay baker named Greg Duda. And he, um, you know, my family was going through a lot. My parents had been divorced and my sisters had both gone to college, but we were kind of, they had used most of the college money. And for me, there wasn't much left over. And when I met Greg, I mean, I, I wasn't that excited about an academic career anyway. And I always loved cooking and I loved working with my hands. I didn't realize there, that there was a, a profession that I could go after until I met Greg. And he inspired me so much. This one dinner he cooked. He was a friend of my older sister's. And we went over to his house and he was really late getting home from the from the bakery that he owned. And he had these two big bags of groceries and literally walked in the door and with the most exuberance, he just started cooking like, you know, knives flying and delicious food being made. And, and he, I said, you know, how could I become a chef? And he said, well, I'll get you into chef school, you know, here in Chicago, you can go to the one I went to, there's a, a waiting list, but I think I can get you, you know, to jump the line. Of course he didn't quite, but so he was a huge, huge inspiration to me. And he also, we were lifelong friends and uh, he, he sadly passed away when he was 50, <laughs> but um, he, 
you know, I think that he definitely, his approach to food, his passion for food, you know, we, we actually lived in the same house together for several years and then he moved to California eventually. So um, he, he's been a big, big influence on my life. Um, now, another person would be Julia Child, who I was had the great fortune. She came into City Cafe in 1981 and ate our food and was a huge champion for women and was super, super, um, you know, in love with the food, loved me and Susan, also just wanted to help us and wanted to, you know, they, she invited us to be on a TV show with her, one of her TV shows. And she, we spent three days with her filming at my house and she just her, her manner, the way she kind of, so um, her, you know, she, her fame really, you know, didn't affect her much. And she was really focused on you when you had a conversation, you know, you felt like she was really connected, actively listening and really um, cared. And I think that for me, that was a great lesson. I, I was, I think, a little bit shy and coming to, you know, that's why I think I like the back of the house and the kitchen. Cause I could kind of hide behind that. Or even, even to this day, I throw parties at home and I think part of it, part of me wanting to cook all the time is, is kind of to keep busy and not have to, you know, I'm, I'm shy, a little bit shy. I mean, not, you wouldn't know it, but you know, there, there is that piece of me that sort of, you know, is a little timid. And I think, Julia really showed me that the value of being present and being there for your fans in, you know, being really listening to them and hearing them and not just like signing the book, but asking them a question about, you know, another friend of mine does this too, David Sedaris. He, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's, he's a great writer and funny as can be, but his, his book signing lines are around the block because every single person who he's signing a book for, he asks one or two or three questions. And Julia used to do that too. It really taught me how to, um, you know, handle fame, even though I'm not nearly as famous, but I think it just helped me to kind of figure out how to open up and be more present with, with my fan base. And then I, I don't know, I was trying to think of who the third person could be, but I, I have to say Susan Feniger, my business partner of 40 years, you know, um, she's been such a, a huge inspiration and, and influence on me. It, I feel like we just like grew up together in so many ways. And she has taught me so many things about myself and, you know, been there. I think the thing about having a partner is you don't really care about them when you're, when everything's going well, you know, every we're succeeding, the money's coming in, everything's great. It's like, yeah, I don't need a partner, do I? But then we've been through so many ups and downs, you know, from 9-11 to the 94 earthquake when the whole front of the restaurant came crashing down and business went from, it, you know, went what became like 25% of what it was previous to the earthquake. You know, we've just been through so many things. And at those moments when you're freaked out and, and scared and worried and, you know, there, there's a failure you have to deal with, which we've dealt with. We've had, you know, huge failures where we had to close restaurants and we lost tons of money. Um, that's when you want a partner. 
that's when you want someone to be there at your side. And, and that's when we both, we both laugh about it. How, how, how much we value having a partner during the darkest of times. <laughs> well, that leads me, we, we're almost uh, wrapping up here, Mary Sue, but it leads me to a question John uh, Spiteri, he, uh, he sent to me uh, because he said that, can you ask her how she keep going, you know, again and again after 40 years and, you know, it's just been ups and downs, as you say, how do you keep finding the energy to get up every day and give it a go? Well, um, you know, it, this career has never felt entirely like work. It's always felt like, you know, my passion, my love. And I, I feel really very fortunate to have found something that I, that, you know, getting up and going to work doesn't feel like a drag. It feels like another possibility, you know, another opportunity, but you know, I'm 63. I don't, you know, I don't have as much energy as I had 20 years ago or 40 years ago, but I do, um, one of the great things during the pandemic has been that Susan, who's five years older than me and I, you know, are pretty conservative when it comes to our health and we want to stay really healthy. And before the vaccines were available, you know, we just didn't want to leave the house. And so we didn't, we stayed in our homes and we, we led from afar from, you know, zoom and phone calls and talking and our team really stepped up to the plate. And um, I think, I, one of the things I'm excited about for the next 10 years is finding those opportunities for the team that are going to really uh, play to their strengths and that they can really wrap their arms around without having to be there on the day-to-day with our hands in the day-to-day. And we've been trying to, to pull away for 10 years and hadn't been able to. And then the pandemic came and like, it finally was like, see, you're not that indispensable. <laughs> you know, you're not, <laughs> the things can go on if, without you. I mean, I'm, I went on a 25 day trip on the Colorado river with no internet in May last year. And I'm leaving fri- this Friday for a, the, a bike trip in Italy and a couple of weeks with my husband. I, I think um, I'm, I think I, I love change and that's interesting because a lot of people hate change and it's very hard to get them to change. But for me, you know, 10 years of working as in the kitchen, like all the time, all the time, all the time was enough. Then I wanted to write cookbooks and then I wanted to do radio shows and then I wanted to do TV shows. And then, you know, I think now what I want to do, so I'm constantly changing my job within the company. And, you know, I was the executive chef and now I would say I'm sort of like the CEO. And um, but now my new task is to, you know, is to build this company around what is going to be good for the team and and those that we have either now on staff or can attract. And one of the things we did with our downtown restaurant over the pandemic was we turned the kitchen into a commissary kitchen that we been making over 10,000 meals a week for the homeless. And, um, and it's been interesting because we get paid for them, not very much, but when you know exactly how many meals you need every day and they're all going to be the same and you buy the right amount of food for that and you have the right amount of labor for that, that takes out a lot of the mystery of the restaurant business. And so I think, um, 
that has been a real wake up call for me around, um, you know, how to build a company that has a little more resilience through things like these pandemics, because <laughs> they're not going to stop, you know, and, and d- disaster doesn't stop. You know, like I said, we had earthquakes and fires and, you know, stock market crashes and 9-11 and now we have the pandemic. It'll it's things just keep happening. So I think um, diversifying my income streams in the company is something I'm kind of focused on right now. And I'm also really uh, passionate about, you know, enjoying my life and having some time off and modeling the kind of behavior that I think is really um, healthy for, for my team so that when they get to be 60, they're, they're also thinking along those lines. Hmm. Um, Last question, Mary Sue, what advice would you give your fellow leaders out there in the industry? Also that can see that, you know, the playbook have changed and more change is coming ahead. Well, um, the first and first and most important thing is to make sure your employees absolutely love where they work. They love their jobs and they're, they feel valued and they enjoy coming to work and, you know, customers will follow if that, if, if you can make sure your employees are really happy. And then, um, I think talking about a healthy lifestyle with your team and modeling that behavior of, you know, work-life balance and, um, making sure that mentally and physically you're, uh, a champion for really good health and take, you know, getting eight hours of sleep every night. And, um, you know, if you do have staff who's work, who are working two jobs, you know, I don't know everybody's financial condition or if they have eight children or one child or what, but, you know, to be, to be able to really have compassion and sort of, um, you know, understanding for where the employees are. And, you know, I can't do that for every employee before the pandemic. I had 300 and some people now we're down to like one, one twenty or so, but my team, it trickles all down from the top. My team has taken on the same, um, kind of approach in management, or at least I hope they have. And I try to try to make sure they have. Um, And the last thing for, I would say, for leaders in the industry is to use your voice. We have a super powerful industry worldwide. You know, 50% of people work in a restaurant at some point in their lives in the United States. And 100% of people, I'm guessing, go to restaurants. And restaurants are sort of the fabric that ties any community together and keeps the streets safe. And so we need to use our voices to really make the public value restaurants, pay a little bit more, make legislation that supports them, you know, less taxes, maybe less red tape and restrictions, you know, um, and mandating some uh, better treatment of our employees because I think it has to be the industry as a whole in some ways, you know, it, we can, a lot of a good, the good operators are doing a lot of the right things, but we need to, we don't have time for everybody to opt in when they feel like it. We have to make the industry more hospitable now. And I think all the, all those things that I've been talking about for the whole hour 
is are things that we have to make noise about and amplify our, the messaging so that um, customers and lawmakers get involved. Great. Uh, where can people uh, find you and uh, learn more about and reach out to you if they want to do that? Mary Sue Milliken on Instagram or Facebook. I think I'm on Twitter too. Um, and then uh, it's, you know, on our website, thebordergrill.com. You can find a lot about our company and you can leave me messages and, and I would, um, and also you can always come visit me <laughs> in California at Socolo, our brand new restaurant that opened eight weeks before the pandemic, which is doing okay now. But we also have a, a couple restaurants in Vegas uh, in the Mandalay Bay Hotel. And um, so come and visit. Great, great. I uh, send you power and energy for for the journey ahead and to your team as well and, and Susan and I'm I'm sure that uh, you're gonna do some amazing impact and thank you for being uh, such a voice in our industry and thank you for coming to the show. Yes, my pleasure, Michael. It was a, a real pleasure to to talk with you. Thank you so much, Mary Sue. You are a powerhouse of inspiration. You're really giving us hope for a better future for hospitality. I would recommend you to sit down with pen and paper and ask yourself, how can I give more than I take? Or how can my organization and team make a more positive impact on people, communities, and the planet? To get further inspiration how to become a better leader and manage life better, I also recommend you to visit episode number 114 with Ari Weinschweig, co-founder of Singermans on Self-Leadership. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at bizsimply.com or visit their social at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly on advice at bizsimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the newsletter and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. I'm Michael Tingster, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast Show. Be Maverick!